In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 14th Sunday after Pentecost, and we're in chapter 18 of St. Matthew's Gospel. Last week we ended chapter 16, and you'll remember that in chapter 16 we saw uh, Jesus uh, declaring uh, his death and resurrection, and his call to the disciples that if they were going to participate with him, if they were going to receive the benefits of his death and resurrection, they were going to have to take up their own cross and follow him. So we've established uh, in chapter 16 some very important things, that Jesus is God, uh, that he's the only son of man, uh, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, and we've established that he's going to die and be resurrected uh, for the sins of the whole world, and that for us to participate in that, we too have to die. Then uh, you'll notice that we've skipped over chapter 17, and that's because chapter 17 starts with uh, the Transfiguration. And we save the uh, Feast of the Transfiguration, we save that portion of the lectionary uh, for the last Sunday of Epiphany. So you'll remember that uh, we always, on all of the years, uh, end Epiphany with that lesson of Transfiguration. And then, of course, we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration on August 6th. So we've read that twice this year. So we're just going to very quietly skip over chapter 17, and we're going into chapter 18. So in chapter 18, we uh, are starting with uh, James and John, who are brother apostles, uh, with them arguing over or questioning uh, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is generally recognized by the fathers of the church to be a sign of their pride. Uh, that they were seeking uh, an office in the way that Jesus says Gentiles seek it, uh, to lord it over one another, to lord office over one another, rather than to see themselves in humility as servants. And so they're trying to establish themselves. And it's very important that they're brothers who are doing this, because then Jesus catches on that theme of brotherhood, and he uses it to talk about what real brotherhood is. And you'll remember that way back in chapter 12, he establishes for us uh, who is a brother and a sister. You'll remember that the crowd comes to Jesus and they say, your, your mother and your brother and sister are outside. And Jesus uses that opportunity to say, who is my mother? Who is my brother and sister? And he says, uh, it is those who do the will of my father. So we have already established who are brothers. We are brother and sister together if we are doing the will of the Father. That's how brotherhood is established. And then we have the church established for us, the definition of the church gathered. And Jesus does that several times, but he does it again here at the end of this passage. He says, whenever you have gathered in my name. And when we say that we have gathered in the name of Jesus, that means that we've gathered for his purposes, according to his will, to walk in his ways. So the church is not a building. The church is not an association. It's not a club. It's not a membership, right? We are a family. We are brothers and sisters when we have acknowledged Christ as Lord and we are together as a group seeking his will. When we do that, we're the church and we're brother and sister. And then Jesus establishes this lesson then within the church for how to deal with sin. Now, this isn't to say that this method for dealing with sin uh, can't be used outside of the church. Uh, The question would be, how could you uh, 
use it outside of the church because what would what would bring us together what what would establish our relationship outside of the church and so uh, before we even go to that place we have to understand uh, how it is that we might understand ourselves in relationship uh, to people outside of the church it's a very very different relationship than inside of the church inside of the church we have uh, a real responsibility to one another that uh, far out exceeds our uh, responsibilities and the level to which we need to be engaged that is uh, we need to be very careful about getting into relationships with people outside of the church we need to be very careful about getting into any kind of an understanding with those outside of the church because our protection is in uh, seeking in unity the will of god and so then Jesus establishes these concentric circles for relationship. And, and at first it starts privately, right? Uh, first we go to the brother privately and we say that you've sinned against me. And then we seek two or three. And then we go to the whole church. So there are concentric circles. And you can see that the point of this, uh, of this keeping it private, is essentially first and foremost for the repudiation of sin and the bringing of righteousness. That is the main goal here. The the main goal is to bring the offending brother back into fellowship and to alleviate him of sin and death. That's the prime purpose, right? And then the secondary purpose is to protect the church. We go and we get two or three and we finally go and get the church because we don't want that sin, which we know is like a poison, one drop can spoil a whole well, to spread to the church and we don't want it to infect the church. So the primary purposes in this method are, number one, to bring the offender back into relationship, to bring them back into righteousness, and then to protect the church from sin. And that's the point that, that Jesus is bringing, and that's the example that we see Ezekiel standing for uh, when he is standing in for the people of Israel who are in uh, slavery in Babylon. You'll remember that the prophet Ezekiel is a contemporary with Jeremiah, who we were talking about last week, and with the prophet Daniel. They uh, are all uh, relatively young men, high-born, of a high education and status. And when Babylon first started to go in and take uh, Jerusalem and Judea, uh, they took those who were educated. They took the high-born. They left the poor and the land workers there to work the land. Uh, they did not take uh, the peasants or the working class. They took the educated class and ezekiel and jeremiah and daniel are certainly examples of that educated class while jeremiah is in the city you remember that he's there for the final siege of jerusalem and he's taken captive and prisoner away ezekiel had already been taken prisoner and so he's in babylon at the time that jerusalem falls so now uh, two consecutive sundays we've seen this siege and fall of jerusalem from two different perspectives we've seen jeremiah's from within the city walls and now we're seeing it from ezekiel's perspective which is outside of the city walls far away in this pagan uh, fortress of babylon and ezekiel's uh, role is still as the watchman which is really interesting isn't it uh, because you would think the the watchman would be on the city walls you'd think that he would be there present and yet uh, the lord uses this example this calling of the watchman to one who's already standing captive and of course then we really have to stop and think why would he ask ezekiel to be a watchman if he's not on the city wall and if the city has already fallen and then we realize when we're reading what it is that he's a watchman over it's over sin 
What he's really telling them to watch out for is sin. Because the Lord is telling us over and over again, look, we're all going to die. All of your bodies are going to get sick and fall away, and it's going to happen pretty quickly. The real concern here is with sin and death and that which can separate us from eternal life. That's our real concern here. Uh, That would separate us from the righteousness of God and from our duty to one another and brotherhood. And so Ezekiel is standing as a watchman against sin. He's standing as a watchman against the sin and death that is coming for the people of Israel that indeed has led them to the sword. And Jesus says, or the Lord says here to Ezekiel, he says, uh, beware of the sword. The sword is the consequence of sin. Sin has a natural consequence. Sometimes people talk about it as if it's separated. Somebody sins and the Lord says, well, I'm going to have to punish you for that sin, like some kind of a a strange uh, king or parent that's uh, removed. There are natural consequences to sin. If you step off the curb without looking, you will get hit by a bus, right? That's the natural consequence of not looking when you cross the street. That's the result, right? And so death is the result of sin. It's not that the Lord is being mean and punishing us later. There's a natural result from separating ourselves from life. If we say, there's life, and I'm going to go over here, the result is death. And that's what sin does. Sin is us saying, there's life, I'm going over here. And so the watchman is saying, beware of sin. The watchman is the adult, the mature Christian. And the ignorant or the foolish are children. So if a a parent and a child are standing on the sidewalk and the parent steps off or doesn't alert the child to coming traffic, the parent is responsible for the child's death. Nobody would say that that stupid child didn't look both ways. We'd say that parent, right? That parent did not adequately warn and protect their child. Because they had the maturity, they had the resources, and they had the knowledge that the child doesn't have. If, if we're mature Christians, speaking for myself, I'm not quite sure, right? If I'm a mature Christian, I am aware enough of the dangers of sin. I have a heightened understanding enough of the dangers, the consequences and result of sin that I'm saying, watch out, watch out. That sin will lead to death. And then if the person who isn't mature, who doesn't see the result of that sin, doesn't act, what else can I do? I'm not a puppeteer. I can't grab them by the hand the way a parent does a child. I've issued my warning. And hopefully, even more importantly, I've been crossing at the crosswalk myself. So if I'm standing at the crosswalk and I'm waiting patiently while everybody else is playing Frogger across the street trying to make it, right? And I'm waiting patiently even though it's a farther walk and even though I may miss that first bus, I'm setting the example. So if I'm leading a life of righteousness and I'm waiting patiently for the good things of God rather than grabbing them as soon as I see them, if I'm waiting patiently for God and for His ways, I'm setting the example with my life, 
And then with whatever means I have, I'm warning of the dangers and consequences of sin, which is the sword. The warning is the trumpet. The trumpet is, as we see from beginning to end in Scripture, the Word of God. We live by it and we speak it. We tell people what the Scriptures say are the consequences and result of sin. God is life and either we choose life or we reject it. Now the way in which we go about this, the attitude with which we have standing at that stoplight waiting, warning those who are going to cross the street, is what St. Paul is talking about in the letter to the Romans. He's saying, you really can't do this with a heart of vengeance. You really can't do this thinking, that guy is going to get what he deserves. As tempting as that may be for myself and maybe some of you to say, boy, I hope they get what they deserve. Watch that guy. He's not going to make it. Right? So tempting. Unfortunately, the scriptures are clear about that too. That's how we will be judged. If we ask for people to get what they deserve, the Lord will say, all right, you really want what you deserve? No, thank you. Mercy is what I'd prefer. And so he says we have to have a heart of mercy towards those that we warn. We have to have a heart of love. We have to have a heart of compassion towards those that we would warn. If we're warning or we're seeking to be an example and we're not doing it out of love and out of compassion and out of a desire for mercy, we're not doing it. We're condemning and inviting condemnation on ourselves. And so St. Paul is saying as clearly as he can, seek good, abhor evil, seek love. And this is why most Christians and probably most preachers that don't have a lectionary would just move along from these verses, right? Because most of us read these and we think, who could do that? Who could do that? God can. The Holy Spirit can. And we can invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts every day through the reading of Scripture, through the confession of sins, through prayer and self-examination, to rid us of that desire for vengeance and bloodlust, and to ask for hearts of love and of mercy and of grace. Every day. Why does Jesus warn us about how to deal with sin in the church? There's no sin in the church, is there? We cannot afford to be that naive. We're not that naive. There is sin wherever there are people. There's sin in the church. And we have to be ready to confront it in love. We have to be ready and practiced to confront it in love. Or else we will be responsible for not having warned our brothers and sisters and called them into righteousness. I've seen people in the church argue over the color of the carpet. Some of the worst arguments we've had have been over budgets. 
a dollar here and a dollar there. And what kind of an example are we setting for those outside of the church? And what energy do we have left to be watchmen out of love and compassion for their everlasting life? We have to be watchmen. We have to be watchmen in love and compassion, hungering and thirsting for the will of God and a heart of the Spirit within ourselves and our church this day and forevermore.